1: Hi, I'm Kathy with a C.
0: And I'm Kathy with
1: a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Sacramento, California. Sacramento is the state's capital and lies at the confluence of the Sacramento and American rivers. The district of old Sacramento harkens back to the city's gold rush era with wooden sidewalks and wagon rides. The California State Railroad Museum, one of several museums in Old Sacramento, depicts the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, one of the country's earliest technological feats. Sacramento was chosen as the state's capital when California was founded in 1850. Not only was it the center of the gold rush, but its convenient inland location was close to both the Sierra Nevada mountain range and the Pacific coast. It also was the western terminus of the Pony Express. Currently, Sacramento's 2020 population of more than 500,000 residents makes it the sixth largest city in California and the ninth largest capital city in the United States. The city still retains a lot of the beautiful Victorian homes and their lush flower gardens built by early settlers in the late 1800s. But evidence investigators dug up In one of these such homes in 1988, uncovered secrets of a violent past that had been buried for years.
0: In early 1988, homelessness was becoming a big problem in Sacramento, and resources were being directed toward getting people off the street. One such homeless resident was Alberto Gonzalez Montoya, who went by the name of Bert. He emigrated to America with his family at the age of 16 from Costa Rica and they settled in one of the southern states. At around that time, he started to develop schizophrenia with auditory hallucinations. His family tried to help him by placing him in a mental institution where he was subjected to frequent shock therapy treatments. At some point, he ran away. It is unknown how he found his way to Sacramento, but eventually was connected with social workers who believed he would be best suited in a board and care facility. Although Bert tried schizophrenia medication, he said it made him feel sick and refused to take them. As a result, he continued to hear voices and would engage in audible conversations with the voices. Bert told others that the voices were spirits from the dead, and one of the voices was his deceased father who would tell him to die or to kill himself. Bert was known as a very innocent, passive person who generally did not speak unless spoken to. After living in a detox treatment facility for five years, Social worker Judy Moise found a boarding house at 1426 F Street that she thought might work well for him. The old Victorian home, which had seven bedrooms, three upstairs and four downstairs, had already been divided for multifamily use. The house was owned by a man named Ricardo Orderica, and a woman named Dorothea Puente had moved into the upstairs unit in the early 1980s, so this is about six years before Burt arrived. She originally started renting out the two additional bedrooms in her unit to different boarders, but then Ricardo and his family moved out, and so she now was able to rent the additional four bedrooms in the downstairs unit to other boarders who were in need. Typically, Dorothea would bring in low-income and mentally ill people who were usually very difficult to house. Judy Moise had not yet placed anyone there, but the boarding house had a stellar reputation, and she heard it was run by a lovely older woman who took very good care of her tenants. 51-year-old Bert Montoya moved into the boarding house in February of 1988.
1: Kath, I watched a Netflix documentary called Worst Roommate Ever and Judy was interviewed, and she and Bert had a really, really special relationship. And it was kind of interesting because as part of the documentary, she showed original camcorder footage of him. Wow. But, yeah,
0: but she held him in very high regard in her heart. So this was very important for her to place him somewhere that she knew would be a soft exactly. place to land. Exactly. The way that boarding houses who brought in homeless individuals or some of the more difficult to place with mental or, or drug issues, mm-hmm. the way they operated is that operator of the boarding house would take the government benefits that the people received every month. Usually it was a Supplemental Security Disability Income, SSDI check. Uh-huh. This is a federal welfare program that is usually designated for people who have some sort of psychiatric or mental issues or physical disabilities. So Montoya became eligible for these SSDI benefits in January of 1988. So this is just a month before moving into Dorothy's boarding house. He was eligible because he had been diagnosed with chronic schizophrenia. Now, in March of 1988, an application was filed requesting that Dorothea be designated his representative payee. All of his checks would now be made out to her directly. And this is a thing with SSDI.
1: It is. Like when I was working with homeless people, it wasn't uncommon for the case managers and I to work with somebody who had a payee who was on SSDI. And it typically happens in a situation where, again, somebody's very housing resistant or extremely difficult to house but they get their money and they spend it all in one shot. And so they're broke for three weeks.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. But it's typically done at a social security office, correct? Correct.
1: And it's something that the SSDI recipient consents to, having a payee, that is. Dorothea took care of Bert and made him wash, shave, eat, and wear clean clothes. Bert would take his medication with his evening meal, and this medication would be in front of his plate when he sat down to eat. He had been prescribed several antipsychotic and antidepressant medications. He had also been prescribed the sleeping aid florazepam. Bert habitually drank a couple of beers and ate two or three burritos at a bar near his home at the boarding house. During the summer of 1988, Dorothea gave the bar owner between $60 and $85 each month to pay for his beer and burrito consumption. One of the things, Kath, that I read about is that Dorothea would take their social security checks, but they each got a stipend. They each got some like funny money and then she would take care of needs like this is what she did for Bert. Dorothea allowed this because Bert did not get intoxicated at these bars. It was just sort of part of his social scene. However, at the end of July 1988, Bert decided he needed more money. So he emptied a bunch of full cans of sodas and recycled the cans (laughs) to use the money and get very drunk.
0: That sounds like something a lot of teenagers would do. (laughs)
1: Exactly. So Dorothea became quite distraught and upset when she learned about this. And she strongly encouraged Bert to stop going to the bar. In August 1988, now there's Bert, who obviously is not taking her advice, went back to the bar and had a beer and a burrito. He was leaning against the bar stool when he fell to the ground. The bar owner, who knew him and knew Dorothea, called Dorothea, but she wasn't home. The bar owner talked to a man who answered the phone in the boarding house and told him what happened, and two men carried Bert back to the boarding house. Dorothea arrived home a few minutes later and was very concerned about this incident. She now believed it was best that Bert have a change of scenery, and she sent him to Mexico to visit with some of her relatives. Dorothea stayed in touch with Bert while he was in Mexico. And when the other tenants asked about him, Dorothea let them know that Bert was enjoying himself in Mexico and would be returning home shortly.
0: Two social workers, one of them Judy Moise and another of her colleagues who had been working with Bert Montoya, tried to contact him through Dorothea in September and October 1988. Dorothea told them that he was still in Mexico, so Judy asked Dorothea to let Bert know that he needed to be back in the country by November 1st so as not to endanger his SSDI benefits. Dorothea assured her that Bert would be back at her residence by then. On Monday, November 1st, 1988, Judy and her colleague returned to the boarding house at 1426 F Street to see if Bert had arrived, but he was not there. Dorothea told them that she was going to pick him up in Mexico and he would be back on Saturday. Shortly after Judy's conversation with Dorothea about when Bert was going to return from Mexico, she received a phone call from a man named Michael Obergon, who was Bert Montoya's brother in law. He assured her that he had picked Bert up from the boarding house after he arrived back from Mexico and was taking him to Shreveport, Utah to live with his family. Judy became very suspicious about the inconsistencies in his story, and when she asked to speak with Bert, his brother in law said that Bert was under the weather, and he refused to give the social worker any number at which Bert could be reached. This made Judy even more suspicious than before, and she felt something was wrong. With these suspicions, Judy called Dorothea back and told her she had just received a fake phone call. Dorothea confirmed to Judy that Michael Obergon was Bert's brother-in-law, and he had come to pick Bert up from the house after he returned from Mexico. Judy told Dorothea that she was going to call the police. On Monday, November 7th, 1988, Judy contacted the police and asked them to follow up on where Bert Montoya was. A police officer went to the boarding house and Dorothea told him that Bert had been in Mexico visiting relatives for two months and had returned from Mexico just three days earlier. She told the officer that Bert was not at home at the moment because his brother-in-law, Michael Obergon, had picked him up the day before. Dorothea suggested that the officer check with the other residents at the boarding house to confirm her story. The officer verified with other residents that Bert had gone to Mexico and had arrived back in Sacramento a few days prior. However, as the officer was speaking to one of the residents, the resident handed the officer an envelope. On it was written, she is making me lie for her. The resident later met the officer a couple of blocks away from the boarding house and told him that despite what he said, he had actually not seen Bert recently. However, the police didn't seem to look any more into Bert Montoya's disappearance, so Judy Moise kept pressing the police about more information.
1: On November 10, 1988, Judy received a letter from Bert's brother-in-law, Michael Obergon. Judy notified the police the next morning and delivered the letter to homicide detective John Cabrera of the Sacramento Police Department to press for a more substantive investigation. Kath, the letter had been postmarked from Reno. And Judy was just highly suspicious. She thought it was fraud. So Detective Cabrera then ran a history of any interactions the police had with Dorothea Puente. He discovered that in August of 1982, she was convicted of administering a controlled substance to another, grand theft and forgery, and served three years of her five-year sentence. At the time Judy was standing in Detective Cabrera's office, Dorothea Puente was still on parole. So the next day, Detectives Cabrera and Brown from the Sacramento Police Department, along with Dorothea's federal parole officer, Jim Wilson, went to the boarding house to investigate Bert Montoya's disappearance.
0: So, Kath, I looked into it because I thought it was odd that it was a federal parole officer and it specified that. Right. As it turns out, when Dorothea was convicted for grand theft and forgery some of these checks were federal treasury checks.
1: I was wondering why that was. I'm glad you found out the answer. You're such a font of information.
0: (laughs) I really am. Do you want to hear more about the theory of relativity? I'd love to. You're so smart. (laughs) I don't think I ever fully explained it the last two times.
1: (laughs) So these three go to speak with Dorothea, asking her about Bert. She absolutely insisted that he was in Mexico, arrived back from Mexico, and left with his brother-in-law to go to Utah.
0: So, Kath, really quickly, I want to talk about the federal parole officer, but also, since I do play a lawyer, I just want to remind you that uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that when people are out on parole, they are subject to searches without warrants. Yep. Now, yeah. federal parole officer Wilson was there because part of Dorothea's parole stipulations included running a boarding house, caring for the elderly, or handling other people's government support checks. Boom goes the dynamite. She has a trifecta. Oh, <laughs>
1: You're welcome. I haven't heard that horrible, horrible (laughs) phrase in a long time. I know. Everyone's cringing right now. I just want to let you know they want to put sticks in their ears.
0: (laughs) I'm okay with that because you want to put sticks in your ears and that's what I live for. I do. (laughs) But because she was doing all three, he actually told her he was going to write up this visit as a violation of her parole. Also
1: bringing him along because she was subject to search, he could have walked in the house and said, hey, Missy, we'd like to search your house. It doesn't mean the Sacramento detectives necessarily get to do it, but he's massaging the situation with so Sacramento. So to speak.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's a Sacramento PD? <laughs> <laughs> so, Detective Cabrera asked Dorothea if they could look around the house, and she said yes. So, although she consented to them coming into her home, as they're leaving, Detective Cabrera says, almost like an aside Hey, do you mind if we dig in your backyard? And they have a little bit of an exchange, and she says, well, sure, sure, that's fine. You can dig in my yard.
0: So the three men, Detectives Cabrera and Brown and Federal Parole Officer Wilson, began digging in the backyard. Did they do
1: that that day or the next day? They did
0: it that day. This wasn't serious digging for them. It wasn't like they were pulling in bulldozers or anything. My understanding is they were kind of just looking around. So they had a couple shovels that they had brought from their car and just playing with the dirt a little bit. During this time, Dorothea was actually taken down to the station and she was questioned for several hours and later released because there really was insufficient evidence. They didn't know she had done anything wrong. It was just more of a feeling they had. So as they're doing this kind of exploratory digging in the backyard, the two detectives and the parole officer actually found some interesting things. They found several things that looked like pieces of fabric or pieces of leather. But Detective Cabrera When he was digging, it was over by a tree and he was getting stuck kind of trying to go deeper because he thought there was a tree root right there. So, you know, he kind of steps in this little hole that he has dug and he bends over and is, you know, yanking with all of his might. The tree root comes free and he screams because it wasn't a tree root. It was a bone. Now, they don't know what kind of bone it was, right? A lot of people bury their pets in the backyard, that Mm -hmm. type of thing. But just to be on the safe side, they shut the site down, they secured the scene and they came back the next morning. This time they were flanked with an anthropologist, the coroner, crime scene investigators, and forensic pathologists. Mm -hmm. The leather they found was actually skin.
1: So, Kath, as a side note, when we first moved into this house, my husband was pulling up an old deck and making a new one. And I am digging in the garden. We're doing whatever we're doing. And I dig up bones. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so I go into him and I'm like, hey, look what I found. And it turned out to be animal bones. So, our prior neighbor, the person who owned this house, probably buried at least two dogs that I'm
0: aware of that I came across. Now, and you knew the people in this house uh-huh. for your whole life. I always thought they were weird. I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> Shout
1: I didn't. out to Mrs.
0: K. Hope you're listening. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Dorothea had sent one of her tenants to tell Detective Cabrera, who was in the yard, that she wished to speak to him. She asked Detective Cabrera if she were under arrest, and he said no. She told him she was nervous and wanted to go over to the Clarion Hotel to have a cup of coffee with her nephew, and Detective Cabrera said, go ahead, that's fine. The Clarion Hotel was really close, and she could pretty much walk right across the street so, Detective Cabrera escorted Dorothea around the perimeter of the digging and out of her property. She did not return. She did what? Oh no, God, no! This can't be your second. She? Ba- yeah, I know. Dipped. She did dip. <laughs> Stay tuned to see if she double dips. <laughs> so, after finding human remains, one of the investigators asked Detective Cabrera where Dorothea was. And the detective directed the investigator to the Clarion Hotel. So the investigator goes across the street to find her. And shortly after that, returns and says, hey, she's not there. He said, hey, she dipped, I believe. I'm sure that is exactly what but That's he said. a quote. So after finding Dorothea gone and after finding human remains, they did a very thorough search of the home and they uncovered a bunch of government-issued identification cards with Dorothea's photograph, but all having different names. Ooh, handy. exactly. So, over the next three days, November 12th, 13th, 14th, seven bodies in total were found buried in the yard at 1426 F Street. Sacramento Police Lieutenant Joe Enloe spoke to the horde of media that was surrounding the crime scene, and as body after body came out of the ground, Lieutenant Enloe eventually had to admit that the police department had no idea where Dorothea Puente was. And, of course, they had to defend themselves on this. Like, how could you just let her walk away from a crime scene? And the detectives explained, look, it was a missing persons investigation. Our initial discovery, we didn't know whether they were human remains. When we determined they were human remains, we had no idea whether they were murdered or whether she was connected in any way. What they did now believe is that this had all the markings of a serial killer.
0: A female serial killer, no exactly. less. California is always ahead of the curve. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so many bad
1: things. Exactly. So many bad exactly. things. Exactly. <laughs> None of the good. A warrant was issued for Dorothea Puente's arrest on November 14th, 1988.
0: So who was Dorothea Helen Gray Puente? She was born in 1929 and grew up in Redlands, California. This is a city just about 65 miles east of Los Angeles in the heat of the desert.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Her father died of tuberculosis when she was just eight years old, and her mother died in a motorcycle accident the following year. However, life was never easy for Dorothea prior to her parents' deaths. Her father was an alcoholic who on multiple occasions threatened to kill himself in front of his children. After her father died, her mother, who was also an alcoholic and a sometime prostitute, lost custody of her children and died that same year. According to journalist Martin Kuz, in an article published in Sectown magazine in the August-September 2009 issue, Dorothea was the sixth of seven children. We had not found that anywhere else. Anywhere. It it ranged from six to 18, I think. Yes, there was nothing definitive. Right. After the mother died, all of the children were sent to an orphanage. And according to an L.A. Times article by journalist Rich Connell published on March 28, 2011, Dorothea was sexually abused while at the orphanage.
1: Kath, I read that even while her mother was alive, after her mother lost custody of her, that the kids bounced from relative to relative to orphanage to foster care between Los Angeles and Napa. That's awful. Yeah, exactly. And so just this very unsteady, unstable situation.
0: Now, according to the SF Gate magazine article by journalist Katie Dowd, by the age of 16, Dorothea was working as a prostitute out of a motel to survive.
1: Kathy, I read in the same article by Mr. Kuz that she was doing this in Olympia, Washington. Oh, yeah. By the time so she was so somehow 16. she made it
0: up there exactly. Now, as World War II came to a close, so this is probably like 1945. 16-year-old Dorothea started dating a 22-year-old soldier named Fred McFall. She actually married him a few months later in Reno, Nevada. On the marriage certificate, she was 16, remember? She actually said she was 30 and used an entirely different name. I wonder if he knew
1: her real age because he was a youngster. He was 22. Right. Hmm. Anyway.
0: Dorothea and Fred had two children, but both were eventually given up for adoption. And Kathy, as we were reading through this, you actually had a quote that kind of summed it up about how she was similar to her mother. Oh,
1: it said, uh, oh gosh, it was a great quote. It said something like... She had inherited her mother's lack of maternal instincts. I believe that Fred left her in 1948, which was the same year her second child was born. So her first child, she actually gave to relatives who eventually adopted the child. Both of them were girls. And then a girl baby was born in 1948. Her husband leaves her. She gives this girl up for adoption.
0: Well, I think she may have given her up for adoption because she was sitting in jail at the time. She was sitting in jail
1: after giving birth, I believe.
0: Okay. Dorothea was actually arrested in Southern California in 1948 for passing forged checks, which is what pushed her husband to leave. Right. So Dorothea was convicted on these charges, though, and sent to jail for about four months. Yes.
1: So this was the beginning of a string of marriages, arrests, and prison time for Dorothea. Over the next 20 years or so, police became very familiar with her. She served time for running a brothel in Sacramento, and was known to cash government benefit checks mailed to her tenants. In 1978, Dorothea was arrested for forging signatures on her tenants' benefit checks. For her arrest in 1978, she only got probation, but in order to avoid probation officers, it was later discovered that Dorothea frequently used aliases. Her fourth husband, Pedro Angel Montalvo, and I know I said that with the best accent. <laughs> thought she was a doctor-actor from a big Mexican family. And it cracks me up. That girl does not look like she has a single drop of Hispanic blood.
0: Well, not only that, but are you really a doctor-slash-actor? I I mean, I know that I'm a podcaster-slash-lawyer on TV, (laughs) but I'm not really sure that's a thing. Exactly.
1: So, Dorothea's fourth husband, Pedro, complained about her compulsive spending habits and said that that was what brought an end to the marriage. So in 1968, Dorothea was around 39 years old. She married a man named Roberto Jose Puente. The marriage ended 16 months later, but she kept his last name. The dissolution of this marriage seemed to be what made Dorothea go straight. And in the 1970s, she completely changed the way she looked. She was known for wearing tight, revealing clothes and... She was known also for having big hair, lots of makeup, that kind of thing. So she was a lot like you. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Dorothea began wearing modest clothing, things that were loose fitting, and she stopped dyeing her hair. So she just decided to go gray. And this is when she decided that she was going to run a room and board in Sacramento and help people.
0: This was the same time that Dorothea had told friends that she was now a devout Christian and wanted to demonstrate it with her actions by giving back to the community. So she opened her house to those most in need, kind of who we had talked about. It was the homeless, the drug addicted, the people with mental health issues, to give them a safe place to land. She also began hosting AA meetings in her home, and local social workers began to know her better, saw that she was just this really sweet, nice old lady, who, by the way, looked a lot like Mrs. Doubtfire. Totally. She totally <laughs> did. <laughs> and this was a sweet old lady where the proletariat was able to stay.
1: That's right. And also, Kath, she at this point was kind of becoming known as a philanthropist. So she was donating to various charities. She was meeting political figures. She had pictures with California governors George Duke Majan and Jerry Brown. They were taken when she was dancing with them at some charity event. But she was invited to these things. Right. Yeah, she was enjoying a
0: reputation as being somebody who was very helpful. And it was at this time that Dorothea had started opening the doors to some of the more afflicted people in the city. Okay, so here we are. Fast forward to 1988. Dorothea is on the run and police have put out a bolo for her because an arrest warrant has been issued. Her photo was all over the television news and in the newspapers. So, Kath. She surfaces all the way down in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. She had gone into a bar, introduced herself as Donna Johansson. Remember, this was husband number two. The last name is from
1: husband number two.
0: Exactly. Right. So she saunters up to an elderly man in a Los Angeles bar. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing she's still wearing her baggy clothing and all her Mrs. Doubtfire glory. Right. (laughs) (laughs) She bought him a drink and started chatting him up. She asked about the amount of his Social Security disability checks.
1: Because that's what you talk about at a bar.
0: Romance is alive and well in Los Angeles. How much do you get? And to get his interest, she said that she could get him bigger checks, Mm -hmm. offered to cook him Thanksgiving dinner, and suggested she move in with him. Bing, bang, boom, she's done. Exactly. Why waste time, sister? Exactly. Life is short for people around you. Oh my God, (laughs) we're so irreverent. So this Donna Johansson gave him her phone number and the room number of the motel where she was staying. I think it was called the Notel Motel. It probably was. In downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, so Kath,
1: I read that he realized it was her that night when he went home and saw all of this stuff on the news and she was wearing the same red jacket that the officer had described her leaving her house with. Oh, that's so funny. Exactly. Anyway, so he calls LAPD and they arrest her the next morning at her motel, and they contact Sacramento. Sacramento flies down. They pick her up on this arrest warrant. It's very dramatic. Like, there's actually footage of it where the Sacramento detectives are flying in on what is clearly a private jet right. to get their gal.
0: Well, there was a TV station in Sacramento that wanted to fly their reporters down when they found out that Dorothea had been arrested, and they were going to take the jet. And so they said to the police, you can ride with us. But you take her back on the jet and we get to have an interview with her. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I did not realize that. And they agreed to it, but there was some sort of stipulation that meant that it wasn't like the golden ticket. But they still did get to interview her.
1: That is really fascinating. She's in custody. She's in a custodial setting. She's not being interrogated by the officers. She's being asked questions by reporters. And she didn't have to answer them. I do remember seeing footage of the dramatic Recapture
0: and what was clearly like a Lear jet coming down together. Oh, like it
1: was exactly. It's like wait, Sacramento PD has jet. (laughs) We fly Allegiant, they're flying Lear. (laughs) Go Spirit, go Spirit. (laughs) By the way, when the police found her, she had over three thousand dollars in cash in her purse. So once it had been made public that Dorothea had been arrested, the adult children of Dorothea's first tenant, a woman named Ruth Monroe came forward to ask the police to include the death of their mother in their investigation of Dorothea Puente. Ruth Monroe's son, Bill, told the police that he believed she poisoned his mother, Ruth. Bill told investigators that Dorothea and Ruth had been close friends and attempted to start a business together, selling breakfast and lunch at a Sacramento bar. Dorothea ran the business end of things, and Ruth financed most of it. According to Bill, Dorothea pressured his mother, Ruth, several times for money, saying the business was losing cash. Ultimately, they had to shut the business down.
0: And it was only a few months between when it
1: opened and when it shut down. Exactly. It was a very, very short thing. I saw Bill in an interview and the way he tells it is that Dorothea kept saying, hey, we're losing money. I need more. Hey, we're losing money. I need more. Hey, we're losing money. I need more. And Ruth was like, "Okay, here you go. Here you go. Here you go. And finally, they both were like, uncle. This thing has to shut down. So shortly after the business shut down, Ruth's husband, who was her second husband, and I believe they had only been married a year, was diagnosed with cancer. When he was diagnosed, he went into the hospital and she moved into the boarding house with Dorothea as her first resident. And I'm saying that she was a resident of the boarding house, but really, she moved in with her friend and they were sharing rental expenses.
0: It was like a half of the Golden Girls.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so at the time, Ruth was retired. So I'm sure she was collecting some type of pension and possibly Social Security. I don't know. And probably had some money from her first husband's death. she, She did have some money. And that's what her son, Bill, was telling in this interview that I saw on the Netflix documentary Worst Roommate Ever. Anyway, so Ruth moves in with Dorothea. On April 11th of 1982, things began to settle down for Ruth, and she was looking forward to the future. She was healthy. She was happy. Yes, she was nursing a cancerous husband, but he was primarily being taken care of in the hospital, and she would visit him on a daily basis. But she had five healthy children, four of whom lived in Sacramento and saw her very, very frequently. Bill, I believe, saw her daily. And she had eighteen to twenty grandchildren.
0: I can understand at that number why she lost count.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like that's what the newspapers reported. Eighteen to twenty. It's Holy like Holy Cow. Okay. So two weeks after Ruth moves in with Dorothea, on the evening of April twenty-fifth, nineteen eighty-two, Bill noticed that his mother looked tired and he was visiting her as he was customarily doing after work. And he said she was drinking something green and asked his mom what it was. And Ruth told him that Dorothea had fixed her a creme de menthe to help calm her nerves and relax her. Now, Bill thought this was odd because his mom didn't really drink. And he had noticed this drink at least two or three occasions. But then he figured, what the heck? If it calms her and helps her sleep... More power to her. Exactly. So two days later, on April 27th, Bill goes back to visit his mom. And he gets to the boarding house. And Dorothea tells him, no, 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 your mom is sick. Don't bother her. And so he says... What's going on? You know, I want to see her. And she goes, No, no, no. I took your mom to the doctor and he gave her a shot to make her sleepy. So she needs some rest. So he says, No, I want to go see my mom. So he goes upstairs and he goes into his mother's bedroom. And Kathy said that his mom is lying in her bed, not moving. And he goes and he's rubbing her back and like, It's okay, mom. Like you're going to feel better. And he says her eyes were open. So he knew she wasn't sleeping. She was crying. Wow. But she wasn't speaking and she wasn't moving. So he comforts her, says, everything's going to be okay, You'll feel better. I'll see you tomorrow. So that same night, Ruth's daughter Rosemary also came by and Rosemary sees Dorothea and Dorothea tells Rosemary the same thing. Your mom isn't feeling well. Let her be. And Dorothea tells Rosemary that Ruth had been given a shot to help her sleep and she needed to be left alone so she could rest. Rosemary goes to her mom's room anyway, but she finds her sound asleep and in bed, so she gives her a hug and kisses her and she leaves. At 5.30 the next morning, so this is April 28, 1982, Dorothea calls Rosemary and tells her, there's something wrong with your mom, you need to come over here right away. By the time Rosemary arrives, her mother has died. Dorothea tells authorities that Ruth had a heart condition And she was experiencing arm pain, side pain, chest pain the previous evening and had been sick in bed for the past few days. She also tells them that Ruth was having emotional problems as a result of having to file for divorce from her husband. So, Kath, the husband's in the hospital. He's racking up a bunch of bills. And as you know, back in the 80s, people were losing their homes because of medical bills. Right. It was a real thing. So, Ruth files for a divorce in order to not be responsible for her husband's medical bills right, and there was evidence that she was conflicted about doing so so according to bill ruth's son dorothea tells investigators that his mother killed herself so ruth's autopsy did not find any evidence of trauma or injury to her body there was no alcohol in her system there was some of this green liquid that smelled sort of like mint But the toxicology results did confirm toxic levels of codeine and acetaminophen, among a bunch of other drugs. Now, at the time, Bill was surprised that there were any drugs in his mother's system whatsoever, and he complained to authorities that he thought Dorothea had poisoned his mother, but there was nothing to substantiate the family's suspicion. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food.
0: What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health.
1: And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
0: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little <laughs> bit.
1: So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash KillerD and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash Killer D.
2: After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues
1: With these human remains being uncovered, Dorothea on the run, she gets recaptured. And now Ruth's family says, hey, can you please investigate our mother's death along with all of this? And they agreed. Now, with respect to the bodies found in Dorothea's backyard, it took the coroner more than two months to identify the seven victims
0: buried there. The first person who was uncovered in the boarding house's backyard was Burt Montoya. This is the schizophrenic man who social worker Judy Moise kept pressing Dorothea and the police to find out where Burt Montoya was. Mm -hmm. When he was uncovered, his body was fully clothed and it was wrapped in many layers of knotted bedding and plastic that had been secured with duct tape. The coroner ruled that he had been dead for weeks to months and his body had remained unburied above the ground for one to six days. Another tenant named Benjamin Fink was identified on November 21, 1988, one week after his remains were discovered. He was wearing only boxer shorts and socks, and he too was wrapped in plastic and a knotted bedspread that was secured by duct tape. Two and a half weeks after Benjamin Fink was identified, the coroner's office confirmed two additional bodies. One was Vera Faye Martin, whose body was found buried just an inch or two under a metal shed in the backyard, enclosed in layers of knotted sheets and tied with twine. Vera's body was clad in a dress, bra, and pantyhose. There was a watch, a ring, and earrings buried nearby. Dorothy Miller's remains were also confirmed. Her body was discovered under some concrete that had been laid around some rose bushes. Like the others, she was wrapped in plastic and fabric that had been knotted and tied with twine. She was wearing two blouses, a long slip or dress, stockings, and underwear. She was in the fetal position with her right arm taped across her abdomen, and a large piece of duct tape which ran around her knees and legs. Three days later, a fourth body was identified as James Gallup, whose remains were found under a gazebo. His body was wrapped in the same manner as the others. He was wearing only a short-sleeved shirt and socks, and a tie was wrapped tightly three times and knotted around his lower left leg and thigh, so it kind of pulled the left leg back under the thigh. Another piece of fabric was wrapped around his right leg and thigh, and then a belt was wrapped around his right ankle and right thigh. Another body they found was Betty Palmer, who was found in a very shallow grave in the front yard. She was the only body found in the front yard. She was wearing a sleeveless nightgown with another dress over it and was found in a seated position. She was also wrapped in a sheet, but her hands, her head, and her legs just above the kneecap had been cut off. None of these body parts were ever found. The last body to be identified was that of Leona Carpenter, which was done on January 6, 1989 more than two months after they first discovered the bodies. Her body was in a fetal position, and she had clothes and shoes on and was in an advanced state of decomposition. It was estimated that she had been dead for a number of months. It was estimated that each of the bodies found buried at the boarding house had been in the ground for a minimum of several weeks, which was Bert Montoya, and a maximum of two years. None of the bodies had any visible evidence of trauma, and the blood had been drained from all of these bodies except Bert Montoya's. In each of the seven victims, the coroner classified the cause of death as undetermined.
1: So Kath, what was interesting about the documentary that I watched, when Detective Cabrera was doing an intensive search of the house, along with other detectives, there was this one room, he said, when you walked into it, the carpet was very cushy. And he realized that there were actually two layers of carpet. So he says he pulls back the first layer of carpet and this overwhelming, horrible smell just hits him. And he had been told that the house had smells to it. The second layer of carpet was over hardwood, like actually beautiful old hardwood, you know, the kind that you envy and you want in your house. That was probably original to the Victorian home. That's exactly right. When he pulls off both layers of carpet and is looking at the original hardwood, It is just stained, but it doesn't necessarily look like blood. It's just like you can see these liquid parts. The smell, obviously, was the decomposition because Detective Cabrera believed that this is where the bodies were prepared for burial, whatever that meant, right? So whether they
0: were cutting off limbs or draining the blood.
1: blood. He believed that this room was that room. One of the things that actually I found most upsetting in doing the research about this case, all of the victims had photographs. Some you could tell were mug shots and some were not. Some were just taken like some were smiles and whatever. In the photographs, you can tell that each of these people were personally afflicted somehow. Some look like they had very serious mental health issues. Some look like they were alcoholics. These were, I'm going to call them society's throwaways. These were the people who could go missing and not be missed. So I did not see a single article when I was doing research for this that gave a biography of the lives of any of these people. And it was so sad because they were identified and they were described like you just did, but they weren't discussed as to any substantive content of their life. So Dorothea was charged with nine counts of murder, which included the seven bodies dug up in her backyard. The death of Ruth Monroe, whose children believe she was poisoned, as well as a ninth person, Everson Gilmuth. So when Dorothea was in prison in 1982, she began a pen pal relationship with Everson Gilmuth, whom she referred to as Gil. He was 77 years old and Dorothea yes. was 56. She, exactly. And he was living in Oregon. So I have no idea. I did not read anything as to how they actually originally connected. So Dorothea gets released from prison in 1985, and Gil moves to Sacramento to be with her. Dorothea wrote Gil's sister in October of 1985 to let her know they were planning on getting married on November 2nd. On their wedding day, Gil sent a mailgram to his sister to let her know they were going to Palm
0: Springs for their honeymoon. So shockingly, I didn't know what a mailgram was, even though I do know the theory of relativity. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So I had to look it up. So a mailgram is when a message is called in to somewhere, Oregon, Mm -hmm. and this would be Dorothea calling into this post office. They transcribe the message for her, and then that post office will deliver the mailgram directly to the intended recipient.
1: That's like email. That was their version. Like, oh, we got to get it to her quickly. Exactly. We're gonna do a mailgram. Ding dong! You've got mail. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: And if you don't understand that reference, ask your parents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fast forward. Dorothea gets arrested, and when she is arrested, the Sacramento police receive a telephone call from Gil's sister essentially saying, hey, I haven't heard from my brother in two years, and he was supposed to have married Dorothea Puente. So police began looking for Everson Gilmoth, who would have been in his early 80s at this point. Nobody knows where he is. So detectives at a local agency start looking at their John Does, and they go, hey, Sacramento PD, we had a John Doe here about three years ago. So it turns out a body washed up in a makeshift coffin and was found on the banks of a Sacramento River. Some guy sees it. He calls the police. The police come and there's a dead body inside and nobody ever claims the body. Nobody has any idea who this is.
0: And it was too decomposed to try and look for fingerprints, that type of thing. Right.
1: So anyway, the bottom line is that was Everson Gilmuth. So he is now the ninth victim of Dorothea Puente, according to law enforcement.
0: I will say the gentleman who found the makeshift coffin was very smart. And instead of looking in the coffin to see what was there, as most people would do, Mm -hmm. he actually called the police first.
1: I would have been like, get me a crowbar
0: now. You would have been. And then you would have been (laughs) scarred for life and never been able to be in the dark because of what you had seen. That's true. I'm sure it would have been a horror. Yeah. Not a whore. A horror.
1: (laughs) Not a Kathy with a K.
0: (laughs) Kathy with a C. (laughs) The trial began on February 9, 1993, in Monterey County, which is about 200 miles south of Sacramento, after a defense motion to move the trial was granted. This was more than four years after Dorothea Puente, now 64 years old, was arrested in Los Angeles. Judge Michael Verga was presiding. During his opening statement, Assistant Chief Deputy District Attorney John O'Meara accused Puente of killing nine people and burying seven of them in the yard of her home. O'Mara admitted that it would not be easy to prove that Dorothea Puente killed all of the nine victims, and he confirmed that pathologists were unable to determine the cause of death for any of the seven bodies they recovered at Puente's home because the bodies were too decomposed. Instead, O'Mara suggested that the jury needed to look at the totality of the circumstances. The way the bodies were wrapped and packaged to help facilitate moving and burying them meant that they were not natural deaths. Prosecutor O'Mara characterized all of Puente's victims as shadow people, meaning that they were without family and friends whose disappearances would go unnoticed. Prosecutor O'Mara also told the jury not to let Puente's appearance fool them. She was not an old woman. He said, quote, and this is for Kathy with a C, she is not Mary C, S-E-E, of C's Candies. <laughs> end quote. A woman near and
1: dear to my heart. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Those nuts and chews, mm, best gift in the world.
1: <laughs> you know what it was funny, calf. back when we we're talking about that she was becoming more Christian and being more charitable, she was specifically trying to look older. Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes, exactly. And in the documentary that I saw when the social worker Judy was interviewed, Judy said, I was in my 50s. I thought she was 70. She was my age, essentially. She was in her 50s as well." But she purposefully wore her hair like a little old lady, all like short hair curls. And she had these big, I'm going to call them matronly glasses, these very big glasses that covered like a third (laughs) of her face, you know. She looked like somebody who was trying to look like an old woman because, honestly, from her nose up, she didn't look old. It was almost like a caricature, like somebody trying to look old. That's when I saw the picture. I was like, okay, she's either younger or she's aged very well. Or she's aged with the help of doctors. Well, that's true because supposedly she spent some of her money on a facelift. How old was she at the time of her trial? She was 59. Okay. She looks like she's trying to be a 70-year-old. The prosecutors kind of had an uphill battle in the sense that, you know, here's the little old lady from Pasadena sitting at the defendant's table, and all of the victims are people who have struggled.
0: So first, I appreciate the Beach Boys reference. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. But it also was Don't Judge a Book by its cover. Totally. So prosecutors allege that Dorothea Puente killed her victims with overdoses of medication so she could cash their Social Security and other benefit checks. With respect to the financial motive, the prosecution presented evidence that only Bert Montoya had Dorothea changed to be his payee for the SSDI benefits. As to all of the other six victims who were buried in the yard, Dorothea forged their signatures on their government benefits checks. In the unpublished California Court of Appeal opinion... It is estimated that the total amount that Dorothea was able to steal from her tenants was around $42,000. Kath, I
1: read a bunch of different articles, and there were many different numbers as to how much she stole. And the highest number I saw was 87000 But that number could have included benefits that Dorothea stole or signed over to herself, as part of rent payments, we don't know exactly.
0: Right. And of course, I know everybody is just dying to know how much that is in 2022 dollars. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so depending on the amount, $42,000 to $87,000, it means that just over 18 months, she stole anywhere from 110 to a quarter of a million dollars. And Kath, I
1: also read that this was able to happen because one of the rules of the house was that none of the tenants were allowed to touch the mail. Only Dorothea
0: could touch the mail. Toxicologists found traces of common prescription sedatives in the bodies of all seven victims buried at the boarding house.
1: Chief Public Defender Kevin Climo compared his client's trial to a witch hunt. He said Dorothea Puente may be a thief, but had no motive for murder. Defense Attorney Climo said she might be responsible for burying bodies in the yard, but she could not be found guilty of killing the victims because they could not exclude natural death and these victims were old and decrepit and had a lot of problems. He said that the evidence will show that Puente was operating what was akin to a hospice. Defense attorney Climo said that eight of the nine people who died did so from natural causes after long illnesses. The ninth, who was also elderly and infirm, referring to Ruth Monroe, whose husband was dying of cancer, committed suicide by taking an overdose of coating and acetaminophen. One of the prosecution witnesses was Donald Anthony, who posed as Burt Montoya's brother-in-law, Michael Obergon, in a phone call to the social worker, Judy Moise. Anthony testified that he called Judy at Dorothea Puente's direction and told her he was taking Burt to Utah. To lend further credibility to the story, he and Dorothea rode a bus to Reno and mailed a letter from there to make it look as though Bert put it in the mail on his way to Utah. Donald also testified that Dorothea Puente directed him to handle the letter wrapped in a paper towel to avoid getting fingerprints on it. Donald Anthony told the court that he loved Dorothea like a mother but came forward after seeing news reports about the seven bodies recovered in her yard.
0: Sacramento Police Homicide Detective John Cabrera testified that Dorothea Puente appeared shocked when she looked into a hole that had been dug in her garden and she saw the remains of a human being. Dorothea did not stay around long enough to see the second of the seven bodies disinterred from her yard that day. I believe that was the day she dipped.
1: I believe so, too.
0: Detective Cabrera also testified about finding empty flurazepam capsules. The next day, forensic pathologist Dr. Robert Anthony testified that all seven people found buried in Dorothea Puente's yard ingested fluorazepam in the 24 hours prior to their death. Dr. Anthony explained that fluorazepam is routinely eliminated from a living person in less than a day, and the fact that it was still in the victim's toxicology results proved they died within 24 hours of ingesting this drug.
1: Kath, I want to read a paragraph from an article written by Martin Kuz, and it was in the August-September 2009 Sacktown magazine. And this is a guy who actually spent a lot of time interviewing Dorothea Puente from prison after her conviction. So he wrote a really interesting and good lengthy article. One of the paragraphs says, The case rested on the shifting sands of circumstantial evidence. Forensic testing had failed to determine a definite cause of death in many of the victims. The seven tenants who had lived at 1426 F Street died with a variety of drugs in their bodies. Anticonvulsants, antidepressants, antipsychotics, painkillers, and tranquilizers. The lone drug present in all of them was florazepam, a sedative for which Dorothea Puente had obtained more than three dozen prescriptions of 30 pills each between October of 1985 and November of 1988, according to court records. It says she purchased the refills through a pair of doctors who, presumably oblivious to her past drugging of clients, trusted her stories that she simply wanted to help the boarders sleep.
0: Speaking of past drugging of clients, remember when we talked about her arrest in 1982? Yes. Remember it was grand theft, forgery, and administering a controlled substance to another? Yes. That's where the drugs came in. That's right. I totally forgot about that. Yes. you want to tell the story? Sure. So Dorothea, the hot ticket, goes
1: to a bar and she talks to a man. They have conversations. They have a couple drinks. And he says, you want to come back to my place? So she gets to his place. And by this time, he is feeling totally woozy, completely not in control of himself. And he basically lays down on the couch and he cannot move. He is totally incapacitated, but he is wide awake.
0: Ooh, that's the scariest
1: thing in the world. I mean, talk about creepy and horrible.
0: This is like succinylcholine in episode three. Exactly.
1: That's right. See, you are a savant.
0: (laughs) Somehow you don't say that is a good thing. Anyways, back to your story. No, I'm totally envious.
1: But anyway, so he is laying on the couch and he is watching Dorothea walk through his apartment, rifle through his drawers, take money, take coins, take checkbooks. And then she walks over to him. She picks up his hand that he can't even move. And she removes his ring. And then she walks
0: out of his apartment. So he's just lying there watching all of this happen. Yes. So scary.
1: Totally scary. Eventually, he's able to, like, regain movement, and he goes to the police and he tells the story. This is what happened. This is what this lady did. Blah, 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 blah. Well, she's caught. I believe that she cashes one of his federal checks. Okay. I believe that's how the whole federal thing got looped in, but I'm not 100% sure. So... That is how she winds up spending three years in jail and winds up being on parole when Detective Cabrera eventually comes a knocking. After four months of testimony from 136 witnesses, the prosecution rested its case on June 7, 1993. One week later, the defense began its case by trying to erode the credibility of some of the prosecution witnesses. One of those targeted by the defense was the testimony of forensic pathologist Dr. Robert Anthony. The defense brought Dr. Randall C. Baselt to the stand, considered to be the preeminent toxicologist who had been an expert at trial in more than 1,400 cases. Dr. Baselt stated that the levels of drugs found in the seven bodies could not be determined because there was not enough information available on what effect decomposition would have on the readings.
0: On July 24th, 1993, the 111th day of trial, the prosecution and defense rested their cases. Closing arguments took three days for each side, and the case finally went to the jury on July 15, 1993. Judge Verga issued instructions on determining first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and manslaughter. On the morning of August 26, 1993, the jury informed the judge that they had reached a verdict on only three of the nine counts. And no amount of further deliberation would allow them to reach decisions on the remaining six counts. The jury found Dorothea Helen Gray Puente guilty of first degree murder in the deaths of Benjamin Fink and Dorothy Miller, and guilty of second degree murder in the death of Leona Carpenter. The jury found the allegations of special circumstances regarding multiple murders to be true. The jury was unable to reach verdicts on the remaining counts, and the court immediately declared a mistrial on the remaining six counts.
1: So, Kath, I want to read to you a part of this Sactown magazine article written in 2009 by Martin Kuz. I thought it was really interesting. What it says is, jury deliberations commenced in July 1993 and soon stalled. Eleven jurors were convinced of Puente's guilt in killing the seven boarders found in her yard, and one juror disagreed. Temper spiked as the impasse stretched to its third week. It says, quote, Someone reached across the table at one point and almost got into a fistfight with him, says one juror who now lives in Oregon. For her and the others, one factor in particular undercut Puente's claim of innocence. Quote, I just don't believe that strongly in coincidence. How many other boarding houses have one person die? She had seven.
0: That's a really good point.
1: Exactly. And she says that's just too much coincidence. Right. So the article goes on to say, finally, on the 24th day of deliberation, the holdout juror acquiesced voting guilty on two counts of first degree murder and one count of second degree murder. He neither explained his motive for capitulating nor discussed why he agreed to convict her of only three killings. As the jury foreman Mike Esplin recalls, the man simply said, that's all I'm going to give. So these jurors were pushing for conviction on the seven people buried in her yard. It was 24 days, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, something so they like they deliberated? Like on
1: the 24th day, this guy basically was like, fine, I'll give you three. I would have killed him on like day four. I know. <laughs> I mean, they started this in
0: February.
1: Right. Which led the defense to be very, very excited about the possibility of an acquittal.
0: And the other thing I thought was interesting, though, is you always hear about juries when the trial goes to like three weeks, four weeks, what have you. They'll always lose jurors, right? Things come up. Life happens. All 12 jurors and the four alternates that started were the same ones that were there at the end of the trial. Which was incredible. Absolutely incredible.
1: One of the jurors, I want to say he was in the military and his unit left without him. And the judge is like, no, 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 you're good. You're staying here. You'll meet (laughs) them later.
0: (laughs) get you a jet. we know people exactly <laughs> exactly
1: so now because of dorothea's first degree murder conviction with an affirmative finding of special circumstances she is eligible for the death penalty so we now move to the penalty phase of the trial and here the defense basically says we are going to throw whatever we can at this jury so that they do not vote to impose the death penalty we want life in prison that's our goal now so of course the defense attorneys were devastated. After nearly a month of deliberation and having these three very serious findings from the jury.
0: So according to the Sacramento Bee, a psychiatrist named Dr. William Vickery testified for the defense. He said deep feelings of hatred and resentment harbored for many years by a very sick and disturbed Dorothea Puente led to the boarding house murders. He believed that Puente actually wanted to be caught and was glad that it was over. In an article in the Sacramento Bee by journalist Wayne Wilson on October 1st, 1993, Dr. William Vickery said that Puente hoodwinked other mental health professionals into diagnosing her as schizophrenic to obtain Supplemental Security Disability Income, or SSDI, beginning in the early 1980s. But Dr. Vickery said that Dorothea Puente is not today, nor has she ever been suffering from a psychiatric disability. Under cross-examination by Prosecutor John O'Meara, Dr. Vickery asserted that Dorothea Puente is a very manipulative person who seeks mental aid when the law is at her back. As an example, in 1978, when she was facing criminal forgery charges, Dorothea Puente invented a history of mental illness in an attempt to evoke sympathy. She told one psychiatrist she had been having hallucinations and hearing animal voices and that she had been committed to a state mental hospital and received electroshock therapy for 11 years. Dr. Vickery asserted that it was all a lie and said it should have been recognized as such by a competent and honest psychiatrist. He pointed out that in the 1978 psychiatric report that Puente told her doctor the voices were very frightening, but she knew they were not real. And Dr. Vickery said this should have been a tip-off. Dorothea did not know the right answers to give because to someone mentally ill, such visual and auditory hallucinations are very real to them. Dr. Vickery said his assumption is that Dorothea Puente was responsible for murdering all nine people of which she was accused.
1: So you're probably wondering why he was testifying for the defense.
0: It's like we've been friends for years. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Exactly. So according to journalist Coos and the Sacktown magazine, Dr. Vickery diagnosed Dorothea Puente as suffering from antisocial personality disorder, a condition marked by deceit and manipulation of others without remorse. He speculates that running a boarding house began for her as a humane endeavor rooted in a desire to undo her painful childhood memories. Quote, I think she truly wanted to rehabilitate her tenants as she could not the people in her own family. On the other hand, when these people, as could be expected, would act up, at that point she snapped and decided to kill them. Unquote. At one point, Detective Cabrera said, in that documentary that I referenced previously, that Dorothea said to him, in a very somber tone, I used to be a good person. And in that moment, believe that she was sincerely sorry for everything that she had
0: done. After the penalty phase, the jury recommended that Dorothea Puente be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She was incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California.
1: Bill Clawson, who testified at Dorothea Puente's trial with respect to the poisoning death of his mother, Ruth Monroe, regards the convicted killers every living day as a denigration of his mother's memory. She's not hurting there in prison, he says. She's got everything she needs. Her life is taken care of. It's sick. Claussen knows Puente's appeal ran out. He also knows what will happen if, by some unimaginable spasm of fate, she should ever walk free. Quote, I'll be waiting for her, Unquote.
0: Dorothy Puente died in prison from natural causes on March 27, 2011. She was 82 years old. The boarding house at 1426 F Street has become sort of a ghoulish monument to Dorothea Puente. After her death, the home sold at public auction. We've seen different amounts, but it looks like somewhere in the range of 215 dollars to $230,000. The couple who bought the house have played up its tragic past, sometimes even displaying a mannequin of Dorothea Puente outside and putting up a plaque that reads, quote, trespassers will be drugged and buried in the yard, end quote. And patches of artificial lawn cover the yard where Dorothea Puente once buried her victims.
1: Detective Cabrera sort of lamented the fact that oftentimes when you have people who are tragically murdered in homes, the house is raised and a park is put in its place or some type of monument to the victims. That will never happen with this home because it was built in 1890. It is an historic home and will be forever preserved in Sacramento.
0: We wanted to do a shout out to Elias0226, who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts that said, you guys are perfect. Thank you. Oh, thank you,
1: Elias. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know it so well. Oh, call me. <laughs> <laughs> Respectful to the families and the listeners. I just binged the entire podcast, though, with a frowny face. Elias, we you have too much time you. to kill. <laughs> we do love you. <laughs> Thank you for leaving us such a nice review. We appreciate hearing all this. If you're listening and have not left us a review yet, please do so. And we actually will have a few update episodes coming up because on some of the cases that we've done in the past 50 episodes, Oops, yep. they have some movement in the appeals. Yep, that's correct. So look for those.